people are always going to uh, discover uh, more cynical and less rewarding ways of getting people to uh, you know to click on the uh, on the pre-roll um, already video advert but you know, that's that's not the part of the of the market that uh, I think concerns you or concerns me every day digital news outlets crank out a large quantity of news content for their audiences quantity yes but how about quality content, something you'd read and cherish months or years later? I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Robert Cottrell is the editor of The Browser, a curation website that sifts through the noise of the Internet each day to identify five of the finest articles on every subject under the sun. In his 10 years as editor, Robert has read about a half a million articles, which gives him a unique perspective on the long-term trends in feature writing around the world. Welcome to the podcast, Robert. Michael, thank you very much for that kind introduction, and it's an honor to be here on It's All Journalism. Okay, well, it's an, it's an honor to, to speak to you uh, all the way from uh, London. Well, you're being all the way from London. But first of all, you know, tell me, you know, I, I'd like to start off by, by asking people about their, their journalist journey. What was it you were doing before you joined the browser, and, and how did you end up there? I was a long time in print journalism, more than 20 years. I was lucky enough to catch the end of the golden age when good newspapers were stable and prosperous businesses. I worked for the Financial Times and for The Economist, and I became interested relatively early on in the possibilities of online journalism. I was looking hard at it in the mid-1990s, and in the mid-2000s, I was, I was working on the, the growth, the development of The Economist website, economist.com, which was evolving at that time from being a place where the print paper was put up online to a centre of creativity, a, a centre of editorial gravity in its own right. So I had a lot of fun doing that. And, you know, I was in New York at the time and, you know, the excitement of sort of Web 2.0 was very much in the air. And although I, I loved The Economist, I had a wonderful time there, I just couldn't resist spinning myself off and seeing whether uh, I could do something entrepreneurial, at least initially in a small way. And that's where the browser came from. I, I sat down with an old friend of mine who was looking to put a bit of money into a media startup to experiment to see what could be done. So we formed a partnership and we, we started the browser. And it started out as a, a curation site and, and it continues to that today, correct? It started out as a curation site, yes. We gave quite a lot of thought to whether we should be producing original writing. I mean, bear in mind that we were sitting down and saying, well, you know, it's, uh, a lot of exciting new things are going on. What should we be doing? But when we talked to our friends, when we talked to wider circles of people, the message we got back was that the problem is too much to read, not too little. So you can probably add the most value by helping people to discover and identify stuff that's going to be really rewarding for them to read. 
Yeah, I remember the in those early days that the curation in a lot of newsrooms was was a bad word. They felt that people's articles and efforts are being stolen and monetized elsewhere. But you know, the more the more we've gotten into this, we begin to see the value of what you just described of you know people finding articles and sharing them out and drawing your attention to things that you probably would have missed. So I think there's a lot of value, as, certainly as a consumer, of curation. I think it's quite important in that respect to make a distinction between curation and aggregation, because it, it's certainly true now, and it was maybe even more true then, that there's a big industry in taking the good stuff from responsible mainstream publications and giving it a, a quick churn, pumping it out and hoping to uh, hijack the eyeballs, hijack the readership. And that's what I think of as being aggregation. Curation, it's, it's kind of not a word I like. I think of a curator as being somebody who works in an art gallery, but it's the word that, that's got applied to, to what we do at the browser. I would like to think that we're doing the same sort of service that, uh, let's say, a music critic or a theatre critic does, that we see what's being done, we see what's going on, and we try to explain to people why the best of it is, is as good as it is and why it's worth their time and money. So, you know, we're not trying to take anybody else's work and pass it off as our own. On the contrary, we're trying to draw the attention of a wider audience to reading, writing that we think is outstanding. So could you sort of go over the, the browser's business model? You know, how is it you're able to sort of sustain, you know, for 10 years? To my delight and constant surprise, we have a very loyal subscriber base. So we have current annual subscription is $49 and I warmly encourage anybody who's listening now to uh, to drop by and subscribe. It's uh, that keeps me in business as the editor and my colleague Uri Bram as the publisher. Now we've been through one or two attempts at business models. At first, we were free to air as a website, and we were hoping to get revenues from advertising. Um, that was a very difficult sort of business plan then and it's an impossible one now. We dallied for a while with building some early native apps and trying to charge for those but that also was a wrong turning. So around about six years ago now we uh, we decided that a paywall on the website coupled with a newsletter for subscribers was the right sort of model and so far that seems to have been sustainable it seems to have been well received what i do notice more and more is that almost all of our subscribers are choosing to opt into our newsletter which goes out at the end of each day containing our five recommendations for that day so whereas I still think of the browser as a website. I think that to most of our subscribers, it now looks like a newsletter. So I would say our business model uh, as a category is now is now paid newsletter. Okay, so 
you get that newsletter. I mean, what, what would you how would you describe a typical browser story, a story that you recommended? What, what is it you're looking for? And, and, and let's actually let's answer that question first. What is it you're looking for? I'm looking mostly and I, I speak in the first person there because I don't pretend that the browser is anything more systematic or far reaching than simply, uh, you know, what I read and what I like. Um, although I do put a great deal of diligence and time and energy into trying to make that choice worthwhile. I'm looking mainly for pieces of writing that make me think. So I'm looking for an idea, a point of view, which is new to me and which tells me something about the world. And beyond that, I'm looking for writing of lasting value. I, I stop and think, is this going to be as good to read in a year's time as it is today? Um, I think we tend to uh, undervalue the staying power of good journalism. We've lived for decades with newspapers whose business model has required them to persuade us that today's newspaper is fantastic and yesterday's newspaper is for wrapping your fish and chips in. You should only care about about now. That's not true. I mean, most good journalism has staying power and the best journalism uh, has say, staying power of decades and centuries. So uh, I, it's, it's a good sort of mental test just to say, What's this going to look like in a year? And the effect of that is to rule out a lot of, if not most, current news stories, because almost any news, news story today is going to be overtaken by a better informed and more complete news story tomorrow. So uh, we, we I'm tending to gravitate towards think pieces, but that's more because of their staying power than because I than, than as a value judgment on news journalism. Yeah. And then I would imagine something that has a degree of depth and maybe some research behind it, some you know, work that has gone into it, not just something like here's here's this week's coverage of Congress or this week's, you know, top story. Originality is the thing and yeah, that can, can come with a very light touch. So uh, let's say a browser, a writer I admire, a writer I admire, I admire greatly is Tyler Cowen, a marginal revolution, who is yeah. a, so he can turn a brilliant original insight, which uh, it, it probably just came to him like that. And he can distill that in two or three hundred words. And yet there may be more. There is very likely to be more wisdom in those three hundred words than there is in anybody, almost anybody else's more plodding, more deeply researched 3000 word piece. So length is not a factor and humor is always a plus. I mean, I think that a light touch is always to be welcomed. Yeah. And it's funny, you mentioned Tyler Cowen. I actually interviewed him a long time ago. I don't know if he still is, but he was a, a um, professor at George Mason University, which is like 15 minutes from my house. And actually, I wasn't necessarily talking to him about, about his economics, but he's also a bit of a foodie. He writes restaurant reviews about you know places that he visits or even restaurants around here. He'll find these sort of niche restaurants. It's kind of interesting that somebody who's that 
you know, recognized for, for one thing, also has a passion for something else that he, he dedicates his time to. Yeah, so, and yeah. I would say that, he you know, he applies that same kind of judgment and insight. He is unintimidated. You know, he doesn't think, yeah. well, you know, yeah, I ought to be an art historian to pronounce on uh, you know, Mexican art or I ought to be a culinary graduate to pronounce on food. No, he just thinks, well, uh, it's his experience He's sincere about it. He's intelligent about it. And invariably, his insights are really worth having on anything. So, I mean, are there any particular types of stories that you really like doing? You know, economics, history, science, you know, is there something that scratches your your particular itch? Or, or do you try to sort of throw a wide net out of different types of talk? Topics? I, I try to throw a wide net out because I, I think that a browser subscriber probably wants to be surprised as well as delighted. So my hope is that in the five pieces I recommend each day, there's going to be at least one piece that that moves the furniture for you. And the more diverse those pieces are, the the more likely one of them is to, uh, to hook your interest. I mean, I think, you know, when I read the, the New Yorker, I don't expect to be spellbound by every article. And that's a deficiency of mine, not of the New Yorkers. Uh, (laughs) But I do expect there to be at least one piece in every issue where I just sit down and think, wow. I was was just looking at the last couple of days browsers and we had five pieces, the first of which was about uh, birds in the ancient world. It was you know, kind of scholarly, but also very, very readable look at how birds were depicted in Greek and Roman life and literature. We had a piece about cooking and stuffing porcupines, which is, <laughs> if you ever think of doing either of those things, I highly recommend it, not the least of which because it points out that you should always wear gloves because the uh, porcupine quills are coated with poison. Yeah, um, we're, lo- we're always looking for something new for Thanksgiving, so maybe a porcupine <laughs> is the way to go, but thank you. Right. Taxation <laughs> of tea in the, in the 19th century. I had no idea about the story behind this, which was the British government uh, abolished income tax in 1816 because they were so pleased that the Napoleonic Wars were over. But then they found, up, found that they had to uh, make up the shortfall from consumption taxes. So they put 100% tax on tea. So the result of that was that the rich paid up and got good tea and uh, a whole sub-industry sprung up of fake teas for sale to poor people, which were <laughs> made out of hedgerows and often they were they were coloured with outright toxins. An interesting piece to me about Abraham Lincoln's sexual orientation, pointing out that uh, the question has only really been discussable for about the past decade or so, and already it seems almost passe, like, you know, who cares? And then finally a piece about how you create the richest of all purple dyes, Tyrian purple, which comes from um, the mucus of carnivorous snails. And you need 200 <laughs> snails to get enough purple dye for a single cotton T-shirt. But the great thing is it, it, it's not lethal for the snails. Apparently you give them a little uh, squeeze on the belly and they spit out the mucus and then, then you can put them back on the rock. Thank so, God. <laughs> so, there's, so there's no kind of overriding theme in that, except that in each of those cases, I've learned something. And in, in each of those cases, I enjoyed the piece. And if you and I were sitting across from one another in a cafe or in a workspace and I would certainly reach over to you and say hey you should look at this and that's the kind of test that I apply when I'm uh, 
you know, when I'm recommending it on the browser. I, I'm never trying to make up the numbers. I'm only ever going to draw something to your attention. You know, that sort of makes sense for for making yourself appealing, for making it something that people want to subscribe to, not to not to reference Forrest Gump, but this idea that you get a big box of chocolates and, you know, 99% of them you don't really care for, but there's that one. If you have somebody who's able to go in and pull out the one good chocolate from five different boxes and give it to you, you know, there's a lot of value in that. Imagine if you have to taste 5,000 pieces of chocolate to find the one, the one that you like. Well, which uh, is the thing that you do, which is, the, right? which, is, which is what I do, that's right. So uh, I'm very glad that over time I've... Uh, developed some instincts with, which uh, enable me sort of to sample the chocolate if I can follow that metaphor rather than eating the whole thing. Yeah, well, tell me about that. I mean, how is it, you know, we're, we're 10 years later. At the beginning, it must have been really kind of hard for you to, you know, oh, my God, I've got to go through all of these websites. And it's not as if, you know, in that time, there there are fewer news stories to review and fewer news sites to to see. There, there are many, many more. You know, how do you curate? How do you stay on top of it? I've developed some tools just at the level of technology, at the level of my phone or iPad over the years, which which make quite a big difference. I used to spread my reading out across five or six or seven different places, mainly an RSS reader, which enables me to pull in feeds from lots and lots of different websites and publications instead of having to go to each of the websites individually. So an RSS reader is an absolutely fundamental tool. I do go to a lot of websites as well because not every website produces an RSS feed. That's a choice of the website. But let's say I follow about somewhere between five and 600 websites and publications on my RSS reader, not all of which are publishing every day, but some of which are publishing several times a day. And so that's my first line of reading. And then I've got something like a couple of hundred websites bookmarked in my browser. And those are websites where I feel that the right frequency because of the rate at which they refresh is more like once a week. So I don't feel the need to uh, you know, have them in my RSS reader coming at me all of the time. Um, and also I would rather go to the website if I feel that there's a low signal to noise ratio, that there are occasional good pieces there, but uh, there are also an awful lot of indifferent pieces. And just for the sake of my own efficiency, I need to spot the good pieces fairly quickly. So I've used RSS Reader. I've also been using an offline RSS Reader to read in the plane or on the train. I use Pinboard, not Pinterest, but Pinboard. And before that, Delicious, I used, I've been using Pocket and uh, Instapaper to read later and Reddit. But essentially, I consolidated in the last year an awful lot of those things into uh, a private, a personal reading app, um, which enables me to do everything in a single window. I, I don't know if you allow uh, commercials on your uh, oh, that's fine. podcast, but it's called, uh, the, the app is called Gentle Reader. And I put it up on the app store just because I, I found that it doubled my productivity. So uh, it seemed worth seeing you know, whether it's uh, similar value to other people. Um, now, the the main sort of rules I've evolved for myself are, first of all, 
if a piece doesn't knock me out right away, then move on. So I found that uh, if a piece doesn't start well, then it is vanishingly rare for a piece to improve later. The first paragraph really is the test of a piece. Yeah. And I'm sure that that rule is not universally true. I'm sure that I've missed some really excellent pieces that just happen to have a confusing or an off-putting or a tedious first paragraph, but it's a good 70%, 80% rule of thumb just in terms of time allocation. If it's not working for you, move on. Um, and the second rule that I've kind of discovered, I would say, is that by far the best predictor of the quality of a piece is the writer. And that may seem you know, just kind of weirdly obvious, but bear in mind that the entire publishing industry is predicated on persuading you that the value, the quality, the guarantee reposes in the publication, that you put your trust in the given publication and the publication brings you what you will then want to read. My experience is somewhat different, which is that, let's say I like to read Susan Orlean, then I will want to read Susan Orlean, whether she is publishing in the New Yorker or in Harper's or in the FT or anywhere else. And that applies at all levels. So once I spot a writer who is producing outstanding writing, then I'm going to follow that writer wherever they go. And even if they write a piece which starts off uh, off-puttingly, you know, I'm going to go to that second, that third paragraph for them and uh, you know see where we're getting there. So yeah, once once you follow those two principles, and so long as you are happy to exclude everything which smacks of spot news, manufactured news, me too hot take. I mean me too in the sense of uh, somebody else's hot take on the story of the day. I don't mean it in the sense of hashtag sure. me too. Yeah. Then as long as, you know, as long as we're avoiding repetitive stereotyped breaking news stories then that gets the you know, the entire internet down to uh, a kind of manageable um, a manageable read a manageable stream so how much do you think you read a day i like would say time -wise. That I, well uh, time wise somewhere between 6 and 8 hours wow uh, that allows me to look at a thousand pieces roughly but if you know if that sounds a crazy number bear in mind that i will often go literally no further than the headline um so if the headline tells me that is an immensely tedious trivial or obvious story then i'm just not going to proceed so look at a thousand pieces maybe read into a hundred of them save half of those, read carefully and reflect on half of those 50, and then out of those, go for the five that make the browser. I don't know if this is of interest, but uh, it's certainly of interest to me, which is that I'm also now sort of looking at whether 
some of that work, not all of it, but some of it can be modelled algorithmically. I mean, we say artificial mm -hmm. intelligence is not really very clever, but so what I'm doing is I'm giving a machine, a machine learning instance, the same feeds that I'm looking at and the machine can see what I choose and what I reject and what eventually goes into the browser. And so over time, the machine is evolving its own view of what it thinks I'm doing. And I hope at some point, we're not there yet, but we're about halfway there, the machine will become a pretty reliable executor of my tastes. And what I'm really hoping there is not so much that I can offload any of my reading onto the machine, but rather that when the machine has perfected my habits or tastes or has modelled my habits and tastes for my current reading, then I can send it out to read you know, 50,000 other publications and see what it comes back with. You know, it can read much, 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 much more than me and maybe come back with a basket of things that I would simply never have seen. So, you know, and then that will give me more things to you know, to work from. I think you know, the browser is always going to be human curation for the foreseeable future. It's going to be me curation, but it will be really great if we could uh, kind of extend its reach by uh, by appealing to the machines. That's pretty fascinating. You know, training a machine to sort of pick up your taste and uh, then letting it loose on the things that just by the sheer volume that you're not going to be able to review, but then bring back something that you can. Uh, take parts of and, and, and rethink and work into it to what you're doing. That's amazing. What are the things that you do? I guess you give monthly prizes for stories. And I should also mention you also include recommendations for podcasts and, and videos as well. So how does that all work? The videos were a not quite a sort of founding element of the browser, but they arrived very early on. And the reason for that was because they brought some life and color to the website when it was otherwise basically text. So that was a, a rather sort of prosaic and utilitarian place to start with them. But over the years, you know, by, if, you've, if you've been looking for a video every day for 10 years, then uh, you know, I, I don't pretend to any particular uh, taste or expertise in videos, but uh, I have rather got into the habit of you know, liking and enjoying them. So. Uh, I would say that the the videos are are decorative. The podcasts, I think, are are more fundamental. I really think that they occupy the same sort of attention space, the same sort of they meet the same sort of desires and needs that uh, a good piece of writing does. I was initially hesitant about including podcasts just because. You can't glance at a podcast. I mean, you can right. glance very, very quickly at a large number of written things. A podcast, it's going to take you upwards of two to five minutes to uh, even get a sense of, of what's going on there, let alone giving it a, and then going the distance with it for a, for a full appreciation. So that was purely a time constraint. But very happily, we have a, the browser has a friend called Carolyn Crampton who has gone into the 
podcast world with the same sort of dedication that the browser has gone into into the writing world and she writes a lot about podcasting she produces podcasts she recommends podcasts so she's come on board as the browser's audio editor and she is able to perform that discovery process of simply knowing everything that's going on and pointing us towards and fetching in podcasts of exceptional quality. So now I, I feel that we can do a responsible job of recommending a podcast each day. And then you do these monthly prizes where you recognize the, the top story podcast video. We love writers and, you know, we, and reading all day. I used to be a professional writer. Now I'm a professional reader. I know what goes into writing. I, I know that it's really very hard work and I know how great it is when somebody seems to understand what you're doing and, and, and to get what you're doing. So from our side we just thought it might be easy enough for us and I hope of value to our writers to you know, not only to say every day here are five pieces which are really great but also to say at the end of each month here is one piece that's just incredible. <laughs> we've, yeah. uh, so we've, start, we've started to kind of singling that out. And it's difficult to do simply because I love everything on the browser. I mean, that's that's why it gets there. And uh, it's very, very hard to choose one thing when it means excluding so many other things. So I sit down and make a short list of three pieces that I think for whatever reason have been uh, you know, really in a class of their own. And Ori Bram, my, my colleague, will do the same thing. And then, you know, we'll compare lists. And so far, at least, there's always been one piece on both lists. So that's the way we've sliced it. What type of feedback have you gotten from people? I understand that, you know, if they're subscribing, if they continue to subscribe, that's a degree of feedback. But, you know, do, you, do your readers reach out to you? Do they tell you what sort of things they like? And do they disagree with you sometimes if you include something? It's unusual for a subscriber to object to a piece, I think, because I'm sure that almost every subscriber from time to time will see a piece with which they disagree, perhaps strongly, whether on the form or on the substance. Um, but I think they, they, all being well, they can also see that it's it's part of a mix and you know, I'm not trying to push any particular version of events. I mean, I, I think people are justified in complaining if they, if they think that I've let standard slip, that I've recommended something which is simply a bad piece of writing. And you know, when I get an email, I, fortunately at the scale we are now, Uri and I can reply personally to all subscribers' emails. So I will have a look and I will have a think. And if I think that uh, yeah, it was a lapse of judgment, then I will say so. One pushback we have had and uh, which has had an effect on the browser is uh, there have been times in the past when we've had an overwhelming proportion of men's bylines compared to women's yeah. bylines and so subscribers both men and women have written in and said you know hey uh, have you noticed you know this is not great initially i i was tempted to sort of say well you know i i, I read a lot of stuff and uh, you know that happens to be the proportions in which the stuff i'm reading is coming at me but i 
tried to be more constructive than that and to range more widely in my reading so that you know, looking back, I mean, not, not trying to do any real time calculations, but looking back, I feel much more comfortable when I see that we've got at least two bylines, let's say, of women writers in any day's browser. And you know, looking back now, I can see that that's generally the case. And uh, I feel relieved about that. I did have um, one note from somebody who was from a subscriber who said, notwithstanding the uh, the improved balance of the browser as a whole, nonetheless, the the little aphorisms, the epigrams that we have at the end of each day, those were still almost universally male and uh, sorry, attributed to men. And that seemed to me to be a slightly more difficult problem in the sense that there you really are dealing with one or two centuries of, of accumulated patriarchy that uh, men's witticisms and table talk tended to get written down um, and women witticisms and table talk much less so. But, you know, again, I've, uh, you know, I've made a systematic effort there to try and discover more epigrams and empirisms by and from women. And that's been enormously rewarding. I mean, it means I've spent a lot more time with Simone Weil and with Eudora Welty, with uh, <laughs> Murdoch, with uh, uh, Flannery O'Connor, you know, and uh, I realise now that it was my blinkers, you know, I can uh, read more widely and uh, increase my own knowledge of the world. You know, as long as I've been a, you know, a journalist, a writer, just even somebody as being a reader, uh, there's always been sort of this undercurrent of like, you know, people aren't as smart, the, the writing isn't as good as it used to be, you know, people people's tastes aren't as rich as, as maybe they used to be in the, the good old days. You know, you've been reading a lot of, you know, online content for the last 10 years. What's your sort of assessment of feature writing in that time? It, are we in a great time for this? Is it is it sort of on a decline? What, what do you think? I think if you start from the economic fundamentals, then you have to see a problem. You have to see a constraint. I mean, back in the day when Esquire or the New Yorker was essentially making as much money as they wanted to make. I mean, the amount of advertising they would run in each issue was determined uh, you know, more by the uh, you know, by the editor's uh, you know, policy views than by the desire of publishers that the advertisers to buy. They could sell as much advertising as they wanted to. They could pay journalists as much as they wanted. They could throw as many journalists at as many stories as they wanted. So. Yes, you're going to have to work with, yes, we're working now with a lot fewer resources. That kind of puts paid to a certain model of story whereby you send you know, Truman Capote out to hang out with Marlon Brando for three months and uh, come back with that. And it's a classic, you know, it's a brilliant piece. And maybe that category of piece doesn't get written anymore, or at least it doesn't get written in the glossy magazines. But if you compare, let's say, feature writing now with feature writing 10 years ago, which is the time frame that I'm most familiar with, then I'm sure that at any given level of quality, the feature writing has held up well may have improved it's certainly recognizably in the same league the new yorker is now as good as 
the New Yorker was 10 years ago, likewise, the New York Review of Books, likewise, foreign affairs. You know, if you care about quality, then you are maintaining quality. It's true that your resources are diminishing, but probably so are your costs and probably so is the willingness of people to write for you at a lineage rate well below what they would have demanded from Esquire in 1965. So the, you know, the flagship, the benchmark publications are still producing fantastic pieces, just as they were doing 10 years ago. And in my view, they are greatly undervalued in the marketplace. I mean, when, when I look at The New Yorker, I see one of life's great bargains. It contains, let's say, 30 feature articles for any of which the right audience would pay five or eight or ten dollars, you know. So in a sense to me, I see in the New Yorker um, you know, 150 dollars worth of writing value, which is being sold for whatever the new is seven dollars ninety nine, nine dollars ninety nine, whatever the newsstand price is now. But uh, it's a fantastic deal. I would say there's there's a lot of new excellent new writing in science. I don't want to say popular science because it's, it's kind of more serious than that, accessible science writing. So I'm thinking there of the emergence of publications such as Quanta, Nautilus, Mosaic, Undark. All of those are interesting because there's a yeah, there are non-profit elements in the in the business models, foundations, philanthropists, grants and so on. But if your interest is uh, in areas of popular science, particularly you know, physics, consciousness, neurology, genetics, yeah, there might be five or ten times as many really excellent things to read now as there were 10 years ago. And obviously to go with that, there's been a rise of really excellent writers. So yeah, Amanda Gefter springs to mind, Philip Ball springs to mind. And those again, those are two writers I would want to read wherever they published. Also, I think there's been a, a lot of new good writing in the area of law and justice. And I particularly want to single out the Marshall Project when you know, Bill Keller moved from being you know, top editor at the New York Times to being top editor at the Marshall Project. And it seemed like a weird move, but actually I found that the pieces that he wrote, the writers that he found, the pieces that he found, I hope even the impact that he had on the world, you know, I, uh, the, the Marshall Project was, a, you know, he made it into a fantastic thing. I hesitate to say because you know, the scale hardly compares, but I think his work on the Marshall Project was as valuable as his work at the New York Times. That's certainly heartening. You make it make it sound like that there's still good writing out there to be to be had, and certainly the the browser in its mission is helping people to find that that good writing. So you know, on behalf of people who who like to read good writing, you know, thank you for helping in that effort. Uh, Robert, appreciate you spending some time with us. You know, sharing your your history and your perceptions about feature writing and and sort of the state of uh, uh, digital media right now. Thanks for being on the podcast. Michael, it's been a great pleasure. Very good to talk. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? 
You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Amelia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.